Today's reading before the lesson will be from Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Good morning, church. Hope you had a beautiful day. We had an interesting time this morning starting off. We didn't think the computer was going to work. So he's going to have to put the songs up there and all these beautiful slides you're about to see that I labored so hard on, you wouldn't get to see. But you'd probably be better off without them. We especially want to welcome our visitors here this morning. Uh, if you are a visitor, please stick around for a few minutes so that we can get to know you better. Uh, we always want to take the opportunity to shake your hand and let you know who we are. If there's any questions you have, don't hesitate to pull one of us aside and let us know what that is, and we guarantee we'll set up a time, we'll work with you, and we'll answer any questions that you have. Uh, common to speech everywhere, and I don't care which language you're looking at or what time you're looking at, is the use of figurative expressions, the use of figurative language. Specialists sort out dozens of ways that people speak figuratively, but among the most common are metaphors and similes. A simile employs the words like and as in order to make a comparison. Jesus used a simile when he said, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, Matthew 13, 31. A metaphor serves the same function as a simile, but expresses the idea more strongly. When Jesus said, I am the door of the sheep, John 10, 27, there is no like or as, he said, I am the door. Or Paul wrote that Jesus is the head over all things to the church, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22. Each time, they're using a metaphor. Now, at least two problems can arise when a speaker or author uses figurative language. The first problem is that metaphors teach in a roundabout way. Paul could have said that Jesus has the authority over his church instead of saying that he is just the head of the church. Direct speech would save the reader a step in interpretation. But a second problem also is that figures of speech can sometimes be confusing. For example, Proverbs 22 verse 28 reads, Do not remove the ancient landmark. Do not remove the ancient landmark. Does this proverb forbid the removal of memorial stones set up to commemorate past events? Uh, does the proverb call on people to be respectful of what their parents have done in the past? Perhaps, uh, but ancient people often mark the boundaries of their fields with large stones. Perhaps this is just simply saying, don't be a thief. We don't know, because this particular figure of speech does not translate to us today. We don't understand for sure what it means. So we come back to the question, why use figurative language? Well, metaphors and similes do involve a risk, but the ability of figures of speech to give power and color to language makes that risk worthwhile. Jesus could have said, straightforwardly, I am the source from which my disciples learn how to produce good deeds. And for me personally, I would like that. 
Instead, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, John 15, 5. And I have to sit there and scratch my head and go, okay, so Jesus is the vine, what does that mean? I am a branch, what does that mean? What does a vine do? What does a branch do? How does that compare? And I have to figure that out. The first expression is anemic and bland, but straightforward, especially when compared to the second. Figures of speech stir the minds and memories of those who hear. We create associations and in the process, we reach conclusions on our own. Through the use of metaphors, teachers do more than tell students what to think. They stir them to think. It is not unusual for the Bible to explain a particular concept by liking it to something that is better known. For example, God is a spirit, John 4, 24. Now, being a physical being, when Scripture says God is a spirit, I honestly have no idea what that means. So to help me, to help me as a reader of Scripture, God is frequently described with physical attributes. In one such passage, Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Isaiah 59, verse 1. The prophet's point is not that God literally has hands or ears. The prophet's point is that God is neither incapable nor unconcerned about us. The analogy simply helps us to understand the reality of God's care. Given the important position the New Testament assigns to the church, we are the church. It is not surprising that it is also described by various metaphors. From these metaphors, the church has characteristics that are similar to the various figures of speech that are used to describe it. Paul, like other authors, used metaphors to stir thoughts and emotions. Some of these memorable figures of speech are the ones that are applied to the church. Because he used metaphors, Christians are awakened to the nuances of what God wants the church, the kingdom of God, to be. To illustrate the point, consider that the New Testament describes Jesus as the bride, excuse me, describes the church as the bride of Christ. On at least three different occasions, that parallel is drawn. Paul used this allusion in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, which reads, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The meaning here is clear. Paul wanted the, churches be de- the church to be devoted to Christ. Just as a bride must keep herself pure for her husband, the church must maintain its purity and its allegiance to Christ. Purity is a chief consideration with this metaphor, this analogy, and is used elsewhere in Scripture, Ephesians 5 and Revelation chapter 19. The church is clearly exalted in Scripture. It is the body of the saved, Ephesians 5, 23. Christ built the church, Matthew 16, 18, and it was purchased with his own blood, Acts 20, verse 28. But what else does the New Testament say about the church? In this lesson, we're going to look at four metaphors that describe the church. 
and see if we can pull out of those metaphors some things that we can understand about the church in order to live in the church and be better Christians as a result. We're going to look at how the church is the body of believers. We're going to look how it is both a field to plant and a building for God's construction. We're going to see how the church is the kingdom of Christ. And we're going to see how it is the household of God. As we will see, the church is all these things and much more. So first, let's look at the idea of the church as a body. The church as a body. One of the most common metaphors used to describe the church is liking it to a human body. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 reads as follows. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of, a number, one of another. Now the church of which we are right now, is obviously not a literal human body. There is a comparison that's being made here. There is a metaphor that's being given to us. But it functions like a body in some very significant ways. First, although the body is a single unit, it is composed of various parts. Each body, has a particular, uh, each body part has a particular function. When the components of the body function properly, the entire body prospers. Our arms are important for our bodies to function as, as designed, but the rest of the body offers support for the arm that often goes unnoticed. The blood system, the arm needs it. The blood, the, the arms even need our lungs and our stomach and our kidneys in order for the arms to work. But the arms don't see that. They just see that they're just waving here. In a similar way, the church has many members, parts that depend upon each other, but few of us are effective working alone. Second, this metaphor is powerful because a literal body is one entity. It has many parts, but it is a single whole. Paul makes the point that each member of the church, like each part of the body, contributes to the well-being of it all. Each of us can find a reward in the health of the whole. None of us should seek our own independent glory. In order for the church to be one body, all of its parts must be coordinated. We are one body, Ephesians 4.4, but the one body has many members possessing a variety of talents that compose or make up that one body. This does not mean that one person is more important than anyone else. For each body part is important to the well-being of the individual. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 the following. For the body is not one member but many. Yet the foot says, because I am not, the, uh, not a hand, I am not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he has desired. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem weaker are necessary. 
God has so composed the body so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Thus, just as each part is necessary for the body to function properly, so each individual is necessary for the church to function as God desires. Congregations will prosper if they emphasize the importance of each member doing what he or she can. And I can promise you this, friends, that if you look at yourself and you see where your strength is, and you come to the eldership and say, this is my strength, please, uh, I want to use this, we will find some place for you to use that strength. And we will back you up. Paul made this point to the Ephesians and described how the whole body being fitted and held together by whatever joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. According to the proper working of each individual part. Causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love, Ephesians 4.16. But perhaps most importantly... The body needs a head, a brain that assigns tasks to the visible and hidden parts. Jesus Christ functions as our head. He defines worship. He defines work and manner of life in the church in a way that is similar to how our heads give our directions to my arm. My brain is telling my arm to go up and down right now. To give you an idea of how important all of us are, and how even seemingly the most insignificant parts are. There is a left fielder with the California Angels that makes a whole lot of money. A whole lot of money. And I'm not, you know, arguing with that. But last year he barely played. And he, he took home a whole lot of money and he barely played. And the reason why is because he had an owie on his big toe. Now that sounds silly, but from my, what I've been told, turf toe is one of the most painful things you can have, that you can barely walk, much less play the field or bat with it. So even though it sounds silly that this man's making millions of dollars and he's got a little owie on his big toe and he can't play, in reality, he could not play. You know, that big toe seemingly less important than the muscles in his arms or his ability to swing or his ability to catch kept him off the field. Even, you know, there is no one here that is unimportant. No one. Next, let us look at the church as a field and a building. Paul drew on uh, experiences of objects from everyday life whenever he discussed and, read and wrote his writings. Things that could be readily understood in order that his readers might appreciate God's design for them as they lived within the community of the saints. Many comparisons are helpful, but each of the metaphors that he uses illustrates the church's mission, its governance or fellowship from a perspective that is different from some other metaphor that he uses. He's looking at the church from different angles. And in the process, we learn something new 
every time we look at the church from a different angle. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 5, Paul uses the metaphor of the church as a field. Here his emphasis is on the relationship between different workers or teachers that build up the church. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9 reads, What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the increase. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. You, the church, are God's field. Now the cooperative work of teachers such as Paul and Apollos, was somewhat like the labors of different farmers working the same field. First, one farmer fertilized the field. Then later, another farmer would come by and would plant in the field. And then a third farmer comes around and hoes and waters in the field. And then finally, a fourth farmer harvests the field. This attacks the idea that the Corinthians had that they were going to divide up the church and follow individual teachers. Paul is saying, no, teachers should be cooperative and work together. And there should not be any jealousy there. There should not be any division there. We all work in the same field. We may do different things in the same field, but we're working for the same goal. Now in verse nine, Paul shifts the metaphor from a field growing crops to a metaphor of the church being a building. The church being a building. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 9, we read, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, as we've seen before, it is helpful to compare the church to a body or to a field, but neither of these have a foundation or a superstructure built upon it. So viewed differently here, Paul looks at it from a different angle, and he says the church is like a well-designed building. Paul, Apollos, and the other teachers were like buildings. At one point, they lay a foundation. Then they select the kind of building material that they'll use. Then they calculate the weight-bearing supports and design the rooms. Each step of the process is essential, but the foundation is the most important part. And the foundation has to be right, or the building is defective. Paul makes the point that the foundation here is Jesus Christ. The church will never be right unless it is built on the foundation of Christ and the apostles with the understanding that Christ is the cornerstone by which everything else is measured. If this eldership comes to you and says, we're going to build this church on something that we think is cool and some ideas that we come up with that have nothing to do with scripture, then it's time for you to get new elders. Because we need to build this church on this and this alone. Jesus Christ.
Next, let's look at the church as a kingdom. The church is a kingdom. Now, students of Scripture will also recognize the church is frequently spoken of as a kingdom. For example, Jesus promised his disciples that some of them would not die until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. The language is also used in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In that passage, Paul described how God rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Important note, side note here, he was in the kingdom. The kingdom is not something that was coming in the future. It's not something that's coming in the future now. The kingdom is now. You are in the kingdom. The church is the kingdom. Now, during the heyday of Greek culture in the 5th century before Christ, there were a few city-states that were democracies. Just a few, not many. But even among the Greeks, democracy was more an ideal than something that was actually realized and something that actually existed. Cities and empires were almost always ruled often, uh, by some form of ruler or emperor some form of king. The welfare of the farmers, the craftsmen, the average man depended upon the wisdom and the goodwill of those kings. When the king was a good man, when the king was a good man, balanced in his enforcement of just, way, just ways, and then the people under him flourished. By common consent, an ideal king produces an efficient and just government. But here's the problem. Almost no earthly king lives, lives up to that ideal. As a matter of fact, you look at the history of uh, Israel and how it was divided into the ten northern tribes of uh, Israel and to the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. You look at the nation of Israel, those ten tribes, and you look at every king they had until they were destroyed by the Assyrians. Not one was good. Judah was up and down. But at least they had some good. But the Israelites had none that were good. However, the kingdom of heaven, meaning the church of the Lord Jesus, has an ideal king and an ideal government. We have an ideal king. Thus, it should be remembered that the church is a kingdom, that it must function as a king. kingdom would function. The church is not like a kingdom in every respect. No more than it's like a body in every respect, or a field in every respect, or a building in every respect. But there are important parts of the idea of a kingdom that inform us of what the church is. Perhaps most important, Jesus is like a king. He is the king in his regal bearing, in glory and honor due him, and in the obedience he commands. Thus, we must follow the decrees of that ruler. In this case, Jesus is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Revelation 17, 14. As, Jesus, as king, Jesus has every right to, to direct the church as he sees fit. In Matthew 28, verse 18 and 20, Jesus said, All authority, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul wrote, And he, referring to God the Father, put all things in subjection under his, referring to Jesus Christ, feet, and gave him as the head over all things, such as the church, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Those who would change the practices of the church should be aware, should beware. Our beliefs are not driven by an ever-changing world. Our beliefs are not driven by culture. Our beliefs are driven by the word of God and we are ruled by the son of God, Jesus Christ. Period. The task of the church is to read his word and to learn what he wants Christians to be or not to be. The church does not gather as a democracy. I repeat, the church does not gather as a democracy. We do not take votes and we do not overrule the Lord. It leans on Christ for its law. Finally, let's look at how the church is referred to as the household of God. The household of God. A final metaphor describing the church is used by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you, before, uh, to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, we normally understand the term house is to refer to one's dwelling place. But this word, household, conveys something that's bigger than that, greater than that. The idea here is a household is a group of people who are under one roof. We are under one church. We have mutual responsibilities toward each other. We work together toward common goals but we are ruled by one individual. In the household of the kings of ancient time, in the households of 17, 1800 England or whatever, you had a household that had father, mother, children, servants, whatever, but there was one person that ruled the house. One. Brother Wayne Jackson has written that to suggest that the church is the household of God is to indicate that it is his, and by virtue of the fact that he planned it, Ephesians 3, 10, 11, he gave his son to purchase it, and he indwells in it. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 reads, So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. God planned the church. Acts 20 and verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock and among, the, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus owns this church because he bought it with his blood on the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22 reads, 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. We are a dwelling that God is inhabiting here at the church. If the church is the household of God, then it belongs to him. As members of God's household, all of our actions should be designed to bring glory and honor to God. When Paul called the church the household of God, it was not quite the same as comparing it to the family or to a building or to a field, again, he's looking at it from a little different angle. As a household, the church is a people who are united by values and a common commitment to a certain way of life. When the church assembles for worship or when the church goes to work tomorrow morning, its conduct is to be guided by these common by this common confession where each member of the household has made. It doesn't matter where we are, friends. We don't play church right now and forget it other times. We do church now, and we do church at home, and we do church at school, and we do church at work. We do church in our neighborhood. Everywhere we go, we do church. Behavior in the household is not limited, not limited to a Bible class or an assembly on the Lord's Day. It is comprised of the way we treat our fellow workers on the job, how we give an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, how we treat our spouse with consideration and respect, how we help our neighbor in need, how we scrupulously keep our word and our promises, and how we support, how we support the community in which we live. How we live our entire life, our entire life is governed by, is controlled by the one who rules the household. That is the God of scripture. So in conclusion, Christians sometimes emphasize one metaphor that draws attention to a particular aspect of the church, to the life, to the neglect of other metaphors. You know, there's all these different ways that you can look at the church. And sometimes we like that one. And I want to hold on to that one. And I want to ignore these others. But if we do, the result is a skewed view of the church built by Jesus Christ. The community of Christian people was a new thing in the world of the first century. It was not quite like any association or fellowship the world had ever seen. The church is more complex and more unique than a body or a building or a field or even a household. Still, in these structures and in these institutions of the ancient world, Jesus and Paul found elements of which they could make useful comparisons in order for us to understand what the church is as God wants it to be. 
A metaphor by its nature is limited in degree in what it can teach. Each metaphor of the New Testament emphasizes one aspect of what Christ wanted his people to be. No one metaphor is adequate to express all the church's complexity. A body illustrates the church's unity, a building its foundation, a kingdom its rule. All the metaphors together guide Christians in their life as believers. As Christians, we must bring together all these metaphors in order to have a full and complete understanding of what Jesus wants the church to be. Just as with our bodies, let us recognize that we are one whole made up of many different parts. We have different talents, we have different abilities, but we are all valuable in the church. Let each of us use our abilities for the furtherance of Jesus' church. Just as different farmers fulfill different tasks at different times to grow a crop, let us recognize that we all have different jobs to do. But when we do different tasks to construct Jesus' building, Jesus' church, let us recognize that Jesus is the only foundation to build upon. Never build the church upon the foundation of mankind. Let us recognize that Jesus' church is a kingdom. With Jesus as its king, let us understand that the church is not a democracy where things are voted and old things are voted out, new things are voted in. No, we must be obedient subjects of the king. The king has decided how we become subjects. The king has decided how we worship as subjects. The king has decided how we live our daily lives as subjects. Our place is not to vote on what we like and what we don't like, but to search for the word of God, find his direction, and then obey it. Finally, let us recognize that as the household of God, that we are a people united by common values and a commitment to a way of life described in scripture. May that common commitment permeate every aspect of our life. We're gonna sing an invitation song in just a minute here. The purpose of that song is to invite you to come forward if you have a need. The need could be if you're not a Christian yet. And friends, all of us need to become Christians if we want to know where our eternity is going to be. If you're confused about that, if you have questions about that, then pull us aside and we'll set up a time to discuss it with you. We'll let you know what the scriptures teach on how to become a Christian, why you need to become a Christian, how you stay a Christian. But if you are a Christian, you've sinned in some public way, or you're struggling with something and you need the help of the church, the church is always here to help. If there's anything you need, please come forward as we stand and sing this invitation song.